0: What Should I Think About? is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful
1: thing we call the
0: world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About? podcast. I'm Celine,
1: And I'm Stephen. And today we're really excited. We've got a really interesting guest, very special guest. Uh, We've got Chris Shelton. Uh, Chris is an ex-Scientologist with a great podcast called The Sensibly Speaking Podcast where he talks about a number of issues around high-control groups, cults, etc. So, Chris, it's great to have you on the What Should I Think About podcast. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be
1: here. Great. Thank you. Um, So, first, I'd like to ask you what it was like growing up as a Scientologist child, because I understand you were raised as as a Scientologist. So could you sort of cast your mind back and tell us a little bit about what that was like?
2: Absolutely. Um, My parents got involved when I was about four years old. So really, every living memory I have has Scientology in it. You know, I don't remember too much before I was four. And so growing up in that household was a lot like growing up in an evangelical Christian household in that it was very, the religion was a strong component. Uh, We talked about it a lot. My parents, all of my parents' friends, were Scientologists. Many of them worked for the church, the same way my parents did. They didn't. They weren't just public members, but they actually were working at the local church in Pasadena, California, where I grew up. So, um, so we were quite heavily involved. Uh, while I, you know, went to I went to public schools, and um, and I had a regular kind of, you know, social adaptations in terms of growing up. Yeah. Um. Because there weren't a lot of Scientology kids
1: <laughs> around. Okay. Right. Okay. It was mostly adults,
2: you yeah. know. So, yeah. um. So I did have a couple. You know, there were a couple friends I had who were Scientology kids, but, um. But my social circle was not, and that created also a whole other layer of interesting, conf- conflicts and and problems, as they would ask me what they'd heard about Scientology. You know, I'm eight, nine, ten years old. I don't know how to defend this, you know. (laughs) So so it was was an interesting time growing up.
1: That is interesting. So at school then, um, were you allowed to do all the sort of normal things um, that were being done at school, like um, any sort of joint religious activity or – you know some of the things that all the other kids were doing were you just part of that or did you have to stay separate for any of any of that stuff
2: oh yeah it's an interesting question no my scientology beliefs or the, the the dogma didn't call for you know abstaining from holidays or right. celebrations or anything like that like some groups have where they just yeah. don't recognize holidays or birthdays right. and things yeah we didn't really have that in fact scientology is quite celebratory they love all the holidays Right. Uh, although they're all secularized because there is no Jesus component in Scientology, right? So, uh, in fact, Hubbard has some pretty you know, dark, dark and, and, and direct things to say about Jesus Christ and about the church and the Catholic church overall. Uh, so, um, yeah, so they were kind of secularized holidays for us.
1: Okay, that's interesting. So uh, I was going to ask you actually about the worldview that you were – um, taught so obviously as a as an ex jehovah 's witness, a big part of my upbringing was um, you know actually the word inculcate was used a lot, which I think is a really interesting word basically you you had to there's a scripture that talks about inculcating it in your child when he gets up when they walk on the road, when they go to sleep, when they get up you know um yeah. what what were you taught as a as a child was it sort of that intense or what what did you find? It was,
2: yes. I, uh, I have another word for you, indoctrinate. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. You know, and I, I, I think those are uh, good synonyms in this, in this case. And yes, I was very much indoctrinated and inculcated into Scientology's beliefs from a very young age. My father especially seemed quite anxious to communicate certain truths and tease me with certain things because there's confidential information in Scientology that you yeah. have to be prepared for. And, um, and there's quite an extensive amount of it. I mean, fully, I would say, maybe about a fifth of the subject is, is fully confidential. Okay. So, um, so I would, I would get teased about those sort of things. And if you know anything, well, you know, I, I have a thing with mysteries, I don't like them, I, I really get glommed on to not, you know, when I don't know something, it, 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 you know, it it vexes me. So, so as a child, I, you know, my father was sort of teasing me with some of this stuff. Like, let me, let me, let me tell you some some Hmm. strange stuff. Like uh, my, my father was telling me when I was still in single digits about implant stations on uh, installations on Mars and how there was space civilizations and there was all kinds of stuff going on hmm. you know and my dad was 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 not science illiterate but yeah. he was Scientology indoctrinated and Scientology's views on science and physics and evolution and stuff like that are are um, well I guess we could say controversial they <laughs> poo-pooed a lot of you know, science For example he said that the speed of light is an arbitrary, uh, you know, uh, speed limit
1: yep. and it's not, it's not
2: true at all. Einstein was totally wrong and you faster than light travel is completely possible and he Hubbard, yeah. met, you know, has many memories of this, of, of, of the past lives where we had interactions on it with space age civilizations. And we haven't always been, you know, here on earth, we have been other places in past lives, uh, oh, yeah. and the, and the galaxy is a really big place these were the kind of things I was being talked to about before I was right. 10 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so there's no critical thinking going on in a, you know, when, when you, were, you were that young, I shouldn't say there's no critical thinking, but it's, it's, you know, you're critically yeah. thinking challenged. You're, you're learning judgment as you grow. And I, and when you're feeding children this information or this kind of information, um, I think there are real issues with that, and I think that that's something we might want to consider in a, in, a, in a broader sense than just these cults you
1: know. absolutely um we we spoke to Professor chris French um, a couple of weeks ago who's a um he's a psychologist. he's an expert in um, things like implanted memories and stuff like that um and um and one of the things he mentioned was it's it's perfectly sensible. in fact, it's you know we design evolution. Through evolution, really, to trust our parents. So, if our parents tell us something, we're going to accept it, aren't we? So, um, so you, you're taught that um, you know all this space stuff is going on. That's part of of the of the the universe that you grow up in. There's there's um, you know these um, well things like the speed of light is is uh, different to what we think. Um, yeah. There's a whole and what else was uh, was part of this belief system that you were uh, brought up with.
2: Well, okay. So while those are some of the more weird tidbits of it, the basic yeah. idea with Scientology is that you are. Uh, oh, actually, I, I always I always fail to do this to start with. So let me do this from the beginning, so I don't mess this up. Um, Scientology is a money making scam that it only <laughs> that uses religious cloaking. to hide the fact that it is a money making scam. And I want to say that really bluntly at the beginning so that nobody falls for what I'm about to say. Because um, I communicate, I can talk about this in a very sensible way that sounds like it kind of makes sense to, and some people start (laughs) falling for it, you know, so I have to kind of, I I have to head that off. Everything about this is a scam. Okay, so that being said, um, the belief set of Scientology is that you are an immortal spiritual being called a thetan. That is who you really are. Your body is just a doll, of a, a, a plaything, a thing that you are occupying for a brief period of time. And when the body grows and then dies, you as an immortal spirit move on and you still live. You still have your memories. You still have your who you basically are as a basic personality and you know, that little voice in your head, that, 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 you know, who you are, that's, that's what carries on. Okay. And, and it's been that way for four quadrillion years. I mean, you've been around in this universe for a very long time. Hmm. Oh, that's another one of those things uh, Hubbard talks about. He says all the dating processes and carbon data, all it's all wrong. He said the universe is 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 way older than anybody believes it is. Science science has our universe at thirteen point eight billion years. Yeah. Hubbard says spiritual entities, thetans, first entered this universe, this physical universe of matter, energy, space, and time, four quadrillion years ago. Wow. That's part of the confidential stuff, by the way. You don't get I, that. At I was going to say.
1: Um, was, I was going to say if we can. Kind of understand what you were taught as a child, versus what um, w- what gets to be found out later. That would be quite useful. So, Absolutely. so what? What? Um, so you you weren't told about the. The Phaetons, the when you were a child, or were, were no, you? No, I was. Were? No, I very much was. The four quadrillion okay.
2: years ago thing right. is the confidential Got bit. Got
1: you. Okay.
2: That the, the very, very public and very, very open and very, very uh, non exclusive, non confidential material in Scientology is that you are an immortal spiritual being. Right. Okay. You have lived life after life after life. You will continue to live life after life after life. You can't do anything else but because. You are immortal. You can't die. Now you can go be a rock. You know you don't have to occupy a, a meat body, as they call it. Right? You could go occupy a rock, where you could go be an ant colony or a forest or something. I suppose. Uh, Hubbard talks about this kind of stuff too. But the general belief set is that you just live after you know again and again and again, and that and the and the 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 um, the real linchpin of the belief set is that. Not only have you been living life after life after life, but every single birth and every single death and every single horrible traumatic thing that happens to you during the course of your life has an effect on you spiritually. And that over the billions of lives that you've led, you have accumulated an almost unthinkable amount of stress and trauma and what Hubbard calls charge. He actually refers to this as electrical charge that you as a spirit are carrying around with you in your mind. And you have all of these mental image pictures that you've created of your lifetimes. And the kicker here is that in between each life, you forget. You tell yourself to forget. You make yourself forget because you don't want to carry around all that pain. Hmm. So every time you start a new life, I'm going to make this the best life ever and you, you know, you kind of resolve and you're going to do this little thing, but you're compelled to, it's a compulsion, you're trapped in a, in a cycle of life after life after life that you can't break out of. This has echoes of Buddhism, but it is mm. definitely not mm. Buddhism. But Hubbard makes many inaccurate comparisons to Buddhism okay. um, in the course of this. So... What I'm describing to you right now is the most basic point of faith or Got belief it. that Scientologists have. And so it's a really important part of the of the belief set.
1: And so this is this is the stuff that would be inculcated into you, indoctrinated yes. into you. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Interesting. That's right. I so, was positive,
2: I mean yeah. positive as an eight year old that I was gonna live forever. Yeah. Me too. That changes the way, right? So that changes the way you think about the world, doesn't it? I was just going
1: to ask you that. What effect does that have on your psyche, on your psychology? Um, A tremendous one. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, like, for example, I used Mm. to, I I don't like flying. I mean, this is just such a stupid little example, but I don't like flying, right? So I have to fly all the time. Mm. And when I was a Scientologist and I was working for the organization, I was flying around the United States doing rigorous projects, and every single time that the plane would start taking off, I would get the jitters, right? I'd start getting a little afraid. But I would tell myself, well, it doesn't really matter if I die or not, because I'm just going to keep living, right? It was a little bit of a reassurance. It was a way of keeping myself safe and held off a little bit of fear. Hmm. Um, Now, that's one minor little positive thing, right? (laughs) Now, on the the other side of that coin, (laughs) right? Yeah, exactly. On the other side of that coin was me dedicating and this is a big story but i'll just just the the summary version is me dedicating my life to the church of scientology on a level that would be comparable to what a monk does going and joining a monastery that was my life for 27 years is i was fully involved immersed in scientology um working at the highest levels of the organization because i dedicated not just this lifetime, but I dedicated the next billion years of my life to Scientology. I signed a contract that said, I'm going to dedicate the next billion years to this, you know, uh, group called the C organization, which is, which is basically the core of Scientology in the same way that you could say the Vatican is the core of the sure. Catholic church. Yep. The C org is the core of Scientology. So So Mm -hmm. I did that work for. uh, I dedicated myself to that without blinking. Oh yeah, billion years. Well, I've been around for you know quadrillions of years. So what's Mm -hmm. what's a billion years among Mm -hmm. friends, right? I'm going to dedicate myself to uh, salvaging what we how we how we talked about it in Scientology is we were salvaging this sector of the universe (laughs) because the universe is a big place, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to start somewhere. So we're going to start here, and we're going to save this planet. Yep. We're going to save mankind uh, from himself, from the from this, this this mind that sort of operates against him and, and, and this spiritual deadness and ignorance of our true selves. I mean, you know, in Scientology, we all have the idea that we have forgotten our true selves and we are so degraded that we actually think we're bodies.
1: Right,
2: that that's a fairly important viewpoint, <laughs> so that, you know, to have so uh, this facing is, the world.
1: This is like denying your embodied self, then essentially, isn't it?
2: Yes, it's a whole life of disassociation. Mm. If mm. you want to talk psychology, right? Mm. It's 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 being in a disassociated, disassociated state from yourself. Mm. I mean, it's it, it, it is it is mind numbing what mm. this can do to you. I I have it's been. Okay, I've been out since 2013 and and I have been working actively daily on recovery, on education, on psychoeducation, on like figuring out how all this works. And at this point, it is hard for me to remember sometimes mm. how I used to think because it yeah. was so different. I'll, I'll catch myself sometimes mm. remembering some of the stuff I used to say and do at a it is really, it was very different. It was a very, very different headspace from your normal everyday person. <laughs>
1: if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe. It's just a click or a tap, but it means that the show gets recognized as something of potential value and interest to others. And it's the main way that we know people care about what we're doing so if you've not already done so, please click subscribe or follow on whatever podcast app you're using. Thank you, and on with the show.
0: When we've done different interviews a few times we've said, um, you know, if you do think that regardless of if it's like with witnesses that there's a paradise or, um, you know, in a few years or if you think, you know, you've got infinite lives, you don't have to worry about your current life, do you? Because it'll all right. sort itself out. Um, do you think um, when when you left, you find it quite liberating to be able to like think about just 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 yourself in this current moment? Or was it overwhelming? Or it was overwhelming
2: actually, and it's mm-hmm. been one of the biggest challenges I've had in my own recovery is overcoming a couple of a couple of very very important principles that that carried me along in in my life one of them being the certainty that i had the answers i had all the answers i knew exactly what was up with life i knew exactly what was going on with the planet with the state of man i care a great deal about where mankind is going i still do i mean this has just been a lifelong caring thing that i have so Scientology gave me a mission and a focus and a direction. And of course, I just, you know, I was born into it. So we're pretty much born into it. So it, it wasn't like I was looking for some other direction or something else to give me purpose. So Scientology kind of put a purpose there, save the planet, save the world. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a pretty high goal. That's a pretty powerful thing to, to, to think you're working on. And that is what I believed I was doing. So stepping out of that, realizing that I had been told a pack of HACA lies, that L. Ron Hubbard was a manipulator and a predator and, and, and a number of other things, uh, was, was quite a difficult revelation to have. And um, needless to say, I was quite upset because uh, I, you know, I was 42 or 43 years old and when, I, when this was all revealed to me, basically, by going down the internet rabbit hole. And um yeah so mad or angry doesn't even begin to describe my, my emotional state mm-hmm. when i found out you know how much how i've been lied to for literally decades and not only lied to but manipulated and, and used like uh, the, 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 the the image that came to my mind then and now is a pawn on a chessboard i was a pawn being moved around on a chessboard by mm-hmm. you know Elron hubbard and, and david Miscavige, mm-hmm. and um that really getting. Realizing that, adapting to that idea, like getting used to that idea, realizing that that's what happened and having to adjust. Um, that was a very difficult process. There's, there's just no, no way around that. And then having to figure out, well, shit. So what is true? Yeah. What what is true? What's not? How do I know? Who, who can I listen to? How do I, where do I even begin to find answers? because my purpose to help other people and to do good in this world and to have a and have a productive and useful and contributive life that that matters that's still there mm. <laughs> but but the science, but the vehicle I thought was getting me there you know was was a total was total bullshit to be blunt and so 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 the the recovery or process for me over all these years has been Getting used to that and figuring out where to find answers anyway, and how to think and how to how to you know navigate this world, despite a lot of people trying to manipulate you into their way of thinking. You know, mm, yeah. so that's been a, that's been a that's been the primary challenge of the last you know mm. eight nine years.
0: Mm. I suppose has um you know starting your uh, podcast and YouTube channel and stuff been. Um, helpful in that regard, um, in that you feel like you can help other people on those journeys.
2: Absolutely. And myself, right? Because it's cathartic. It's been cathartic to talk about it and to answer people's questions about it. Um, I mean, I've answered thousands of questions on video about Scientology and about cults and stuff. Um, And that has definitely contributed to my own recovery. I'll tell you, and you guys might have experienced this too, you know, the positive feedback that you get from people and the way that you, you know, can reveal or expose abuses and predators mm-hmm. and abusive behavior uh, really helps people. And mm-hmm. and when you get that positive feedback from them, you know, I mean, isn't that the, it, it feels quite good, <laughs> you know, good. To, to, to offer real help to people, not the mm-hmm. fake help that that was so frustrating when I was there, you know, because you knew something was wrong. But. I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, and it was a number of things, you know. But.
1: So, well, how did um, how did you think that Scientology was? How were you taught that Scientology was saving the world? What's the kind of what were you doing that was going to save everybody? Could you just because uh, I'm I'm not sure how that how that works.
2: Absolutely, it's and, and quite simply, it is. It is releasing people or freeing people from that cycle that they are trapped in of the life after life after life. Okay. It's, it's not that what, what science, the carrot Scientology is promising is, um, again, like Buddhism, kind of, you know, is this freedom from this, this release from this, this, this prison planet. Yeah, And not only that though, there's more we're here according to Hubbard we're st- we're trapped here um because we have fallen you could say we're sort of not it, fallen angels would be a wrong analogy to me because there's no real god figure in Scientology you are the god in Scientology yeah. so so there's no god you're praying to or worshiping that's not how Scientology is a religion mm-hmm. um, it's a religion because it promises to make you into a god in other words you're in this fallen state because you've forgotten who you really are and scientology's job is to release and remove all that stress and trauma you've accumulated over all these billions and billions of lives so that you're restored to what's called native state and native state for a thetan is is a position where you're able to create the physical universe Where the rules of matter energy space and time don't really apply to you anymore Mm. and it's very analogous in some ways to uh the uh mormon view of of eternity where Mm. you get your own planet you get your own universe right you get Mm. you get an infinity of time where you become the god figure Mm. and people are going to worship you now that's a that's a possibility in scientology
1: so there's always big promises, isn't there? With these, uh, oh. these groups.
2: <laughs> yeah. Hubbard didn't aim, didn't, didn't, aim for the, the, the ground. He was, yeah. he was shooting yeah. star high. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was listening, uh, well, we're both watching your, um, podcast, um, about your kind of leaving process. Um, uh, yes. I can't remember what number it was. I number 169 if people, uh, want sure. to check it out. Um, but um, you talk about how you kind of left, and there was a lot of procedural stuff in there. Um, and and it, my, my day job is in organisations, so I work with organisations to help them be more functional. And as you're describing all of this, so you, essentially you sound like a, a middle manager of a sales team, essentially, um, and you're frustrated because you're not being given the resources that you need in order to... Um, to, to do what your targets say you should be doing, so you've got key performance indicators, you've got targets, you've, you're have you trying to meet those targets but you're not being given the resources to do that, so obviously by this time you've left home and you're now dedicating your life to this mission and, um, and this is what you're doing, but you're frustrated because the organisation is dysfunctional. Um, so to say it, the least, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: you could say it that way.
1: <laughs> it seems to be having an effect on you at the time. So you still believe it, but this is having an effect on you. Could you tell us a little bit about what effect that's having on you and your how that's affecting your beliefs around the organization and and around your, your beliefs as a whole?
2: Absolutely. Um, and you're referring to the time that I was leaving. Hmm. So this was a uh, 2012, 2013 time period. And I'd been involved in the Sea Org for uh, 17 years. I worked for the church of Scientology for 25 years. So, uh, so I knew what was up. I mean, I knew what was up in terms of how the organization was running and how, as you say, how dysfunctional it was hmm. S- really strictly speaking. It goes beyond dysfunction. It's it's a high control abusive organization and hmm. it, it's as it's, it's not just, you know, got some errors or problems in it. And um, and the entire purpose of the organization is deceptive. As I mentioned, it's a money making scam. And that mm-hmm. scam includes its own membership and, the, and its own employees, so yeah. to speak, its own workers. We were all part of the scam. We were all in, we were all being scammed. Sure. The the only person who really understood and understands that system, what it really is doing is L. Ron Hubbard and he died and then David Miscavige took over. Mm -hmm. So I was caught up in a system where it was abusive and dysfunctional, but I was continually thinking because it was told to me over and over again that I was the one who was at fault. It was my fault, my problem, my issues. It was only my misdeeds, my sins, my what they call overt acts, that were causing me to feel critical about the organization. It wouldn't be that there were real problems. No, it had to be that it was my sins that were causing me to think that maybe there's a little bit too much emphasis on money here. Maybe there's a, maybe I'm lying an awful lot for the cause, and that doesn't seem right. You know this kind of thing where 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 things start dawning on you that you've fallen into behavior patterns that are quite destructive, and you look at that and go, "Wait a second, what am I doing?" You know how you have these epiphanies from time to time where you sort of review your life and go, "Hey, wait a second, I'm not happy. I'm trying to make other people happy. I'm lying all the time. I'm I'm having to you know spend an inordinate amount of time trying to make money for this organization when." Uh, That's not what I signed up to do or be here for. I'm not here for the money
1: Hmm. and
2: to, you know, make matters even, you know, really worse is I'm only getting paid like 40 or 50 bucks a week. So uh, they're, they're feeding me and they're clothing me and they're sending me around to do things. And I'm working full, full, full time for this organization. So you know, after twenty five years of that, I started feeling a little burned out. Yeah, (laughs) and and started waking up to it.
0: In terms of when you were leaving, so I know in your um, story you mentioned that you know you said you basically walked all night. um,
2: oh yeah earlier on yes yeah yes. earlier on when that, you... that was significantly earlier than me actually officially yes. leaving the organization yeah yes. when
0: you first started and you said um yeah. you 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 know didn't know if your wife would have told them at that point that you know you hadn't come home or not um when you uh, were leaving you know properly finally um, did your partner leave as well or was that um was it just yourself no it's just me. Yeah,
2: she was still hardcore dedicated, and mm-hmm. I had seen behind the curtain, so to speak, uh-huh. and she hadn't. My efforts to try to open her eyes or point things out were met routinely with mm-hmm. not just resistance but accusations, yeah. and um, and the accusations were along the lines of what I was just describing. Because mm-hmm. this is indoctrination in Scientology. This, it's a it's a it's a self sealing organization this way in that you can't criticize the organization because if you if you're critical that means you have done bad things so the only remedy for a person who's critical of the organization is not to look into analyze investigate or figure out what's going on it's to investigate the person who's making the Mm complaints and oddly and ironically that's true for people outside scientology too so when critics are making a fuss outside of scientology about scientology their response is never reflection and you know self-critique and let's see how we can do better. It's let's find the crimes of this man who dares to criticize our perfect organization. And having been in that headspace, it is 100% delusional. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was deluded. There is no other word for it. You know, and that is the—that's the headspace of every single Scientologist, is they are incapable of self-reflection or criticism of the organization or the subject, and that's—that's that's almost a defining characteristic of, you know, a destructive cult, and that's what Scientology. It is, it
1: is. interesting. If we're talking to uh, Dr. Lalich tomorrow, um, we're into. Oh, my, uh, she's my hero, man! She is the I best. Know. Oh, she's awesome. so uh, and and that that reminds me of the bounded um choice choice. model that she's talking about absolutely yeah so uh, and it's interesting because uh, that that is so similar to some of the other interviews we've had with ex Jehovah's witnesses who you know say well it it must be me it must be me that's getting it wrong you know it's it's me that that's uh and, and so you're looking for spiritual help you're looking to to, to be built up and to become spiritually strong again. But actually what's happening is your, your sensible nature is noticing that um, there's something wrong here. And of course, you're not going to get any help to, uh, to identify that, are you, as you, um, as you see those things? I know
0: with Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they call people that aren't part of the religion worldly people. Um, yeah. And you're not encouraged to associate with worldly people, um, I guess, because that might encourage, you know, thinking about things differently and so on um is it the same with Scientology where you're kind of encouraged to keep to just your group of people that believe the same things as you or
2: yes it is and um and the reasons for that are fairly obvious of course Mm -hmm. because you want to keep everybody tightly knit and controlled it's about Mm -hmm. control and manipulation what we call coercive control right uh, so isolation is a factor of that. And coercive control is not just something you see in cults. I mean, this is domestic violence situations, you know, intimate partner violence, gangs, trafficking. I mean, across all these domains, we see these mechanisms of coercive control. And thought, re- thought control or thought reform is a, is a key component here. And um, so controlling the way people are thinking about things is a goal for organizations like this and um and not a little bit of control we're talking about a lot of control Mm -hmm. so um so if you are straying from the path if you're going off the reservation if you're asking too many questions they're going to notice these are going to be considered red flags and you're going to get pulled in and they're going to sit you down and they're going to want to go over this with you and find out well where's this disaffection coming from where, why are you questioning things? What's the, what's, what's the problem with our perfect organization? Why do you have a problem with it? And they'll start digging and finding out, are you reading things on the internet? Are you talking to people like me? <laughs> are, you, are, you doing, are, you, are you watching Scientology in the Aftermath? Or in other words, are you getting information from someplace outside of us? Because we're supposed to be the only source of information for you about anything that really matters. Mm. And whether that's the Catholic Church of Scientology telling you that, or your company for that matter, or your sports club or your martial arts dojo, any group that is laying that on you mm. is trying to control you and manipulate you. And that's, that. I, I just don't know a simpler way to describe it. Mm. And that's very much what I experienced in Scientology
1: absolutely and it, and it is one of those um defining elements of of a high control group isn't it and again you know the same with jehovah's witnesses i remember when i when i made my decision to first start looking into my beliefs but not so we we were supposed to make the truth our own was the lingo um but that was that was through study and and so on but it was only studying um, JW publications and Watchtower stuff, you know. So you weren't supposed to go anywhere else to get this um, this information. Um, and so the first thing I did was to do that. And that was a really big moment, the moment when I said, I'm going to start reading other works of knowledge and other, you know, I'm going to look at science and I'm going to look at philosophy and I'm going to listen to other people's views. And that is like, that is a massive uh, line to step over, I think, isn't it? And, wow. and of course... They know what they're doing. They're doing this because, of course, they don't want you to, to think in any way other than the one that, that is, is promoting the belief system that, that, that works for them. So it's, it's kind That's of right. obvious when you know. But when you're in it, <laughs> it's different, isn't it?
2: Well, it's yeah. very different because, what, because because the things that you emphasize are very different. And it really is a matter of priority and emphasis and, and perspective for us because we, 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 you know, we're willingly part of abusive organizations because we believe or tell ourselves or convince ourselves that, that you know, it, it's, it's the purpose, it's the, it's the drive, it's, the, it's what we're doing. The goal is so high-minded, it's so perfect, it's so wonderful. Or the outcome is going to be so amazing yeah. that the end justifies the means. Mm and that's and we see this kind of thinking over and over again and people are amazing unfortunately it's a little tragic how easy people are to you know engage in what's called motivated reasoning where they reason something through they're very logical thinkers but they're only letting themselves think with a very small amount of information so they come up with you know, the conclusions that they want to come up with and then come up with reasons to justify that rather than actually thinking things through.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, actually, the, while I think about it, um, I might be just sort of going off piece a bit, but um, there's just something that um, you mentioned on your uh, podcast. I think it was the last podcast you have done, actually, with um, John Atack mm-hmm. um, You were talking there about um, reading... Uh, some of the materials that that L. Ron Hubbard had um, had written, and and basically you said that you'd uh, you managed to to kind of construct some sense out of them through all the effort that you put forward. Um, do you want, just want to tell me uh, just explain better than I have what what you mean by that? So you you'd got this stuff that you were reading. What what did you do?
2: Yeah, it was funny. I. Scientology is not just a couple pamphlets, right? It's, it's 5,000 lectures. It's, it's, it's thousands of pages of issues. It's 27 books. I mean, there's, there's a, or more even. I think there's upwards of 50. There's, there's a tremendous body of knowledge there, or information, I should say, maybe not knowledge. Um, I studied that stuff for decades right? and tried so hard over all those years, and, and this goes back to my childhood, where it was being explained to me, and then I start getting into it, and you know, doing the equivalent of going to seminary, and then, and then even beyond that, yep. and what, and, and the shock happened here is that, okay, so I spent all these years trying to make all this stuff make sense, and I can talk about it fairly rationally, and kind of make it make sense to you, or anybody who wants to know about it, but <laughs> imagine my surprise when I go back to a lecture that I had not looked at in over 10 years, right, since I've been in Scientology. I go back to it because I'm going to explain this to people. I go, okay, let's take this little bit of, of Scientology minutia, which I do a lot, and let's explain it to people. So, so my surprise was I open up the lecture thinking, oh, yeah, I remember this lecture. He talks about this and this and this. And I start reading it, <laughs> the transcript. And it was just nonsense. I mean, 1000% pure bullshit. There was not one thing in this lecture that made any goddamn sense. And it's hard to say that after having studied and word. I mean, just the amount of effort I spent trying to understand this stuff and make it make sense. And that's actually the key phrase right there. Make it make sense because what I realized going back to it is that I had to invent ideas and insert them into what Hubbard was saying in order to make it make sense. I had to make my own sense out of it because he was talking gibberish. And (laughs) I can't really get across how powerful a moment that was for me because I had given this material a lot of credibility for a very long time. A, a significant portion of my life was all about how true and important and significant this this work was. Hmm. So you know, it, similar to uh, what I mentioned, you know, earlier in the podcast, how how angry I was when I found yeah. out, you know, that I'd been lied to. This was a similar moment, but rather than the negative anger. I was having an epiphany of, Mm. oh my God, this stuff doesn't make sense. And it never (laughs) made sense. And half the sense that I gave it, I had to come up with myself to make it make sense. It just was a statement. It was a testament to how powerful we are Mm. when we are motivated to want to believe something.
1: So, uh, you know? when you were talking about that on on your podcast, it got it got me thinking. I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's a um, there's a you know we've got lots of biases um, that that we have. Yeah. You know, there's a particular yeah. bias called um, the IKEA effect. Have you heard of that? Oh no,
2: this is a new one.
1: What's that? Okay, so the IKEA effect is that you know IKEA furniture. Oh yeah, uh, you get that in the states, yeah. <laughs> um, I have some right here. Uh, okay. <laughs> So the idea is, is what what tends to happen is if you if you have a part in making something, so sure it it's, um, it comes in a flat pack, but you have to you have to put it together, um, and the fact that you have a part in in putting it together and you're actually constructing it, um, and we've seen this through experiment. If you then try to um, if you ask people how much that is worth, what you find is that if you've had a part in putting it together, you think it's worth more. Than it actually is, um, and that, that got me thinking. So it feels like a really clever way, actually, to to really get you invested in your beliefs, because not only are you just being told them, but you're actually helping to construct them in your own mind. So it makes it more difficult to uh, to leave it behind. That's that's that was what I was thinking when I was listening to that. Um, so I thought you might find that that um, that interesting because I know you're you're interested in all of that stuff. So I want to ask you about your <laughs> master's um, in a minute, yeah. um, Chris. But um, Celine, is there anything else um, that, that you wanted to ask before I um, ask those questions?
0: Yeah, I suppose just um, in terms of when you left, obviously it's, no matter which group you're leaving, it's um, difficult in that your whole community group is there. Did anyone um, leave at the same time of you as you, like any friends, family, Partner, or was it just you on your own at that point that left
2: no it was just a little me i, I did it on my own i had um i had the, the i could not have done it on my own if i had not had the assistance of my parents who had divorced they were separated and remarried and um they had both left the church officially they were no longer doing scientology services My mom had left the whole belief set behind, my father hadn't, but they were out of the organization Mm -hmm. and they understood that it was not an organization uh, that was necessarily doing or, you know, what it it purported to be doing. But um, But they were super, super careful with me over all the years so that I wouldn't, you know, shun them or disconnect from them. Yep. Anyway, they helped me, but otherwise, no. Nobody else left with me. I, I had no other support system. I was mm-hmm. definitely by myself.
1: Yeah, uh, and identity is one of those those things that I guess you struggle with a little bit when you leave. Oh. Well, I know you do. Um, <laughs> it's one of the areas that I focused in in research on to uh, uh, to understand how people go through that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, who am I when when you when you've left something like that? I guess is a big a big mm. question
2: huge in fact it was on my and we'll get to this but it was it was on my program that i learned about self-categorization theory and and that was that that fit everything i had been thinking about with identity over all these years it it just it was oh that that's what it was okay good
1: as our listeners know because i bore everybody with it constantly i've just finished my (laughs) master's uh last year in organizational psychology and my dissertation i actually did some work on levers of jehovah's witnesses so um i was able to kind of get into that but then the the year I was finishing um, I became aware of this fascinating and really interesting master's program at Salford uh, uh, University Um, but it was too late then I shot my bolt I'd done my master's Um, Mm. but you um, that's the one you're doing isn't it so tell us about the master's that you're doing
2: yeah it's an awesome program um rod and linda dubrow marshall have put together a program of study uh it's a one-year full-time program you can do it uh, i think on a two-year three-year basis too on part-time um but it's basically just you know three trimesters um first covered um you know the itology and psychology of coercive control in other words where does it come from what's the anatomy of it how does coercive control work and coercive control, to be clear from the start, is is manipulative, you know, uh, control of people. It's it's overtaking their determinism and 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 laying in your own, and uh, and this has you know pretty drastic and tragic consequences in these domains we talk about with, uh, and this is how it's studied across domains of domestic violence, across the domain of cults and and gangs, and across the the domain of human trafficking which is an extensive domain, There's a lot of stuff going on there. So Mm -hmm. when you look at the mechanisms of coercive control, like in other words, how do predators or narcissists or cult leaders or gang leaders or, or domestic abusers, get away with it? How do they do what they do? And that's what we've been studying across these across these classes. So we've looked at it in terms of its anatomy, we've looked at it in terms of um, comparative contexts, looking at you know, say uh, spiritually abusive groups versus, and how are they similar and how are they different from um, pseudo therapy cults? Hmm. Uh, how is that different or similar from groups like Scientology hmm. or sex trafficking or domestic violence situations? And you find that the the way that people are going about doing this, this abusive stuff is pretty similar from one way, you know, one place to another. And they're yeah they're the psychological mechanisms at play. Hmm. Well, people are people, and they respond very similarly to certain. I guess you could say stimuli. Hmm. <laughs> you know, to, to certain ways that, of being talked to, of certain ways of 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 manipulating their emotion, um, of of their intellect, of their rationality. You know, if you can um, convince a person, basically anybody that they are on the side of right and good, and that what they're gonna do, no matter what it is, is the right, good, true thing to do, and the group agrees, you're away. You know, you, you can get away with almost anything. Hmm. And, um, and that's just human psychology. It, it plays on tribalism, it plays on, you know, and we learn about all this stuff. We're learning about all these various factors. And, and, we've, and we've also gotten into how this applies with terrorists. And uh, yeah. radicalization, yeah. which is a really big problem right now for just about every government on the planet, they're trying to figure this out. So, um, so these mechanisms are are at play across all of these situations. And so, what we've been doing is studying how it works, how to break it down, and a whole term on recovery. And and so there's treatment and recovery for this too. It's not just here's the problem. Figure it out. It's here's the problem, and here's actually how we deal with it. Yeah. And, um, and the individual interventions and, uh, and recovery techniques and therapies and exit counseling and various things you can do with people, short, medium, and long term, yeah. give you, you know, the way out of these situations. So yeah. it's a pretty comprehensive program that way. Sounds f-
1: fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm so sorry I've missed that one.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I literally lucked into it because of yeah. COVID, because it wasn't no. being offered online. No. So the one good thing that came out of COVID for me was this program opened up and I got to do it as a full-time learner here from Denver, You know, even though it's being offered mm. at a Salford. Of course,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, So one of the things that um, I, I'm still trying to um, get my thinking straight on is... Um, and it relates to this idea around self and identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel that a lot of the books, not all, um, but a lot of the books that are out there about cults and high control groups, seem to talk, I suppose, more from a you know how people get dragged into them, yep. um, rather than uh, people like you and you and me who were born into to the this situation. So a lot of the a lot of the work seems to talk around like you know your true self, and then this true yeah. self gets uh, a pseudo self put on top of it, and then and then the the deprogramming work is really to help get your true self back again. And and I just find that really problematic from my perspective, both from a psychological yes. <laughs> point of view, because um, you know my my studies suggest that the self isn't this unitary thing. You know we're kind of we, we construct the self through our experiences and that includes all of our lives, including time we were in a, a high control group. And, and so we're working on constructing ourselves constantly. Um, but it's kind of no help as well because you're if you leave a group when you're an adult and you were brought up in that, you don't sort of have a, well, by that theory, you don't really have a true self to go back to. So well, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I'm not, I, as I said, i am not got my head, around it yet, but I, I yeah, what, what do you think about that?
2: It's a great question what you're asking, because what you're asking about is the difference between second gens, what we call mm. second generation cult members, yeah. versus your primary or first generation members, yeah. right? People who decided on their own at some point in their life, generally their adult life, mm. to join this high control group. And so we, we look at the recruitment methods and the retention methods for those for that group of people quite intensely. And in most of the work and study that's been done on cults or, or high control groups or authoritarian groups has focused on that kind of member. Hmm. Now we are seeing, and, and psychology is only very recently starting to recognize that second generation members hmm. are their own kettle of fish, so to speak, yeah. and, and that it is a different thing. Similar, and of course, all the mechanisms of control hmm. are the same, but how it affects a child growing up in a situation like that is radically different from how it affects a, a, you know, an adult who has a more developed brain and critical thinking mm. skills and various mm. other things. You know, there's a lot there's as you say, there's a ton of factors here and identity theory and and the psychology of identity is absolutely fascinating. There are so many rabbit holes to go down with that. (laughs) So it's not a settled science at all in terms of what our identity is, how we form it, what personality is, what's consciousness. I mean, these are big, huge questions. And you're asking the exact same kind of questions I was asking on this program because I'm a second gen member. And so you're like, well, hey, what's my pre-cult personality look like, right? How's that supposed to work? Mm. And what you find with second gens is it's a little more complicated um, because you have who you are, who you're born as, right? Like the the, the thing that is you, whatever you're, and, and maybe genetics is overemphasized in this. You know, it's still a, a a growing science itself right now. But we have genetic factors, we have cultural factors, we have language factors, I mean, all these things that are 1,000% out of your control from the moment you're born. Mm -hmm. So, all of these are part of the mix, and it's very hard, and I've really grown to appreciate how hard it is to realistically separate these things out from a therapeutic point of view. Yeah, And and this is why context, you know, the models that exist, I guess what I'm really trying to say is that The models that exist are a little fluid. Hmm. You know, we have Steve Hassan's bike model, we have Yanya wallace talk about bounded choice, we have Hmm. um Alexander Stein talk about you know attachment issues. Attachment, yeah. Right? There's a lot, lots of ways to approach Hmm. this. And all I'm trying to say is that um all of this is understood by these people who it well, let me say it's understood that the people who do this work, they get how complicated it is. And that, and that at the end of the day, the person in front of you is going to have their own set of individual issues that you're going to have to deal with mm. that are going to be different and unique to them. And that's how you approach therapy.
1: Very interesting. That's really interesting. Thank you very much for that. Um, well, how, how long have you got on the, the course left? How, how many?
2: Well, I'm on my final term. So okay. all the classwork has now been done. Yes, and um, so I have a couple essays to write, and then I have okay. to do
1: my dissertation. Great. Well, good luck with that. I'd love to. Yeah. I'd love to read it. Um, when you've got <laughs> I'll that. probably publish faster. it when I get it done. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, one one thing I was going to ask was was about your work. So uh, just quickly, yeah. I suppose for you is, um, you know, you you're you've got a successful podcast. You're uh, you seem to be enjoying what you're doing. Uh, what's your plans for? The channel and for your activism and and uh, and so on going forward.
2: Great. Um, I, I wish I knew exactly. <laughs> that's that's part of what this what we're getting this um, the, this degree is all about, right? Is is having some letters after my name, so people might take me a little more seriously. <laughs>
1: um,
2: and, and I'm hoping that that opens some doors for me, and perhaps allows me to get my podcast up to the next level, and you know, and maybe open some doors onto some bigger podcasts and stuff. That's, that's sort of an immediate, I have about four books I want to write, <laughs> including two in collaboration with a couple other people yep. that I'm kind of working on right now, uh, cult related and, you know, this kind of psychology related stuff. I'm, I, am i I'm deep into thinking about thinking, right? That's what I do. Yeah. So I, so I like to talk about this stuff. I'm endlessly fascinated by it. So I'll probably move in that direction of getting those books done, getting some, you know some. Uh, backlog video work done. And then I have to see where, what direction I want to go in. You know, I'm, I've been enjoying being this public figure, doing this public work, interviewing and talking to survivors and, and, and other trained professionals in this field. So I don't really see myself stopping that, you know, but yeah. we'll see what the future holds.
1: Cool. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. I've really enjoyed that, Chris. Thank you so much um, for coming on the show. It's really Um, lovely to speak to you. It is. Oh, thank you, guys. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Great. And obviously, we'll put your links to your... Uh, wonderful podcast um, on our show notes. Obviously, you're you're braver than us because you have a video version of your podcast as well. You're on YouTube, uh, <laughs> yeah. so uh, we'll put that on out, as well. out loud and proud. Yeah. Proud.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Great. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Chris Shelton. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Absolutely. You're very
0: welcome. Thank you. What should I think about? Is an Evil Sheep production.